Hello, and welcome to the Forensic Files. I'm Dr. N, and I created this podcast to delve into the fascinating field of forensic psychology. The first 13 episodes of this podcast will be dedicated to my forensic psychology class for the spring semester of 2020. Think of the first few months as an overview of the field as a whole. After the class is over, I'll dive deeper into more specific topics, cases, individuals, etc., based on listener interest. I do want to note before we get started that I am not a licensed practicing forensic psychologist. I do have a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology, and I'm a professor of psychology at a university in the United States. My field of IO, like forensic psychology, is quite interdisciplinary, so topics I have interest in may fall under many different fields, including forensic psychology, clinical psychology, epidemiology, ergonomics, just to name a few. I want to be upfront about my background so that listeners are not misled to believe I have first-hand experience with the practices I will be discussing. Can you make a murderer? Is there a situation in which you could confess to a crime you didn't actually commit? How much trust should we put in investigators, forensic analysts, and expert witnesses? These are just a few of the questions we'll address with this podcast. As much as possible, I will take a scientific approach to answering these questions by providing empirical evidence wherever possible. There may be opportunities for speculation, but I'll keep those short and clarify when I'm presenting an opinion. Now, on to the topic for today's episode. What is forensic psychology? If you're thinking mindhunter and criminal profiling and hunting serial killers, you're not technically wrong, but the field is so much more than that. I'll spend at least a couple episodes talking about profiling and the mind and motivation of serial killers, but there are so many other areas within our legal system that forensic psychology influences. We'll discuss selection and training of police officers, the history of false confession research, and the difference between not guilty by reason of insanity and guilty but also mentally ill. You may be one of many people who is unfamiliar with forensic psychology. Historically, we can see a lot of instances where individuals have invoked concepts of forensic psychology well before it was a recognized field and profession. Back in 1256, there was an English judge named Henry de Bracton. He had this system of identifying quote-unquote insane persons and associated them more closely with their animal counterparts who lack reason and comprehension for the consequences of their actions and couldn't feel remorse. Through a series of mistranslations passed down throughout the centuries following his tenure, the common view is that Henry created what we call today the quote-unquote wild beast test, though the judge himself never actually used this term. This is an early example of questioning criminal responsibility. Are there some people or circumstances that deem someone not criminally responsible for their actions? That's a pretty complicated question to unpack, and it goes way beyond those labeled quote-unquote criminally insane to include children and individuals incapable of understanding what they've done is wrong. There are many examples of the insanity defense or mental disorder defense in recent history, both being upheld and not. One of the more peculiar cases involved in all seriousness, Twinkies. Yeah, the dessert snack. Let me elaborate. It's 1985, we're in San Francisco where city councilman Dan White shoots and kills two people, fellow councilman Harvey Milk and the current mayor, George Moscone. At his trial, White's attorneys recounted a history of mental illness, which White claimed to cope with by way of consuming junk food, specifically Twinkies. 
This coping mechanism, however, made White feel more depressed, allegedly, which his attorney alleged contributed to the likelihood of the violent actions he committed. Sounds ridiculous, right? Well, rather than being convicted of first-degree murder, the jury convicted White of two counts of voluntary manslaughter, and the media quickly coined the term Twinkie Defense to forever memorialize the ridiculousness of that verdict. Mental confidence to stand trial and being held criminally responsible is only a very small part of what forensic psychology is and what forensic psychologists do as part of the legal system. At this point, some of you may be thinking, does it have to do with catching serial killers? Well, you'd be sort of correct. Criminal profiling is just another skill forensic psychologists possess. Understanding the motivations, patterns, and clues left behind at crime scenes can help police narrow down a search or predict the killer's next moves. The development of psychological profiling is detailed in the Netflix series Mindhunter. In 1974, the FBI formed its Behavioral Science Unit to investigate serial rape and homicide cases. Some of those agents from that unit went on to interview 36 serial murderers who were incarcerated at the time in order to systematically assess categories of different types of offenders. This process led to the theory of organized versus disorganized crimes, where organized crimes are premeditated, meticulously planned, resulting in little evidence left at the scene, whereas disorganized crimes are not planned, they're more haphazard, and result in more evidence present at the scene. Organized criminals can be equated with what we refer to now as psychopaths, or individuals who are antisocial, understand what they are doing is wrong, and do it anyway, and show no remorse for their actions. Disorganized criminals tend to be younger, more mentally unstable, or under the influence of substances. In the decades following the events of Mindhunter, which I highly recommend if you're interested at all in this topic, Psychologists became involved in the process of offender profiling, namely a guy named David Cantor, founder of the field of investigative psychology in the early 90s. The scientific efficacy of profiling is still under question today, which we will talk about more in an upcoming episode. Unfortunately, there are many theories that have no scientific basis and are not empirically validated, which makes expert testimony continue to be viewed as problematic by many in the legal system. Though, as I'll discuss in the future episode, that doesn't just plague the psychological community, but also the forensic science community as well. Hugo Munsterberg has his hand in the development of many areas of psychology. He was a busy man. Along with being regarded as the founding father of industrial psychology, now more commonly known as industrial and organizational psychology, my field of expertise, he's also referred to as the founding father of forensic psychology along with having great influence in the areas of applied and clinical psychology. In terms of forensic psychology, he was a vocal advocate for the use of psychology in the courts and legal system more generally. He articulated many modern issues tackled by forensic psychologists in his book On the Witness Stand, including false confessions, the power of suggestion and cross-examination, and the physiological components used to develop lie detector tests. His work paved the way for other psychologists to pursue legal psychology as a career. So that's a very mini intro into the history of forensic psychology. We will talk more about the history and careers in forensic psychology next week. 
Moving forward, I will do my best to use all correct terminology and inclusive language. I want all my listeners to feel comfortable and respected. Please reach out if there's ever an issue, and I promise to address it promptly and directly. For my students who are listening to this podcast for a review of our class material, I'm choosing to keep my identity and the university's identity confidential at this point. Since the podcast will eventually go beyond the scope of our class, I don't want there to be any direct association between my work here and my work at the university. I will be posting detailed notes for each episode, including written scripts, accompanying and suggested readings, references for every episode, and other relevant resources. The link to a Google Doc will be in the notes of this episode and every episode moving forward. It will be a living document that I plan on updating weekly as I do research for each episode. I also have a website for the podcast at the-forensic-files.captivate.fm, which will also be linked in the episode notes. You can find me on Instagram at theforensicfilespod. Please reach out if you have any questions, corrections, suggestions, or just requests. The email for this podcast is theforensicfilespod at gmail.com. I can't promise requests will be granted during the academic semester given the structure of the class being predetermined, but I will absolutely be drawing on those suggestions into the summer months. All episode content was researched, written, and produced by me, Dr. N. All music you hear in the episodes was written and produced by me and classical composer Jeffrey Young. <laughs>